These are the words of a college student, a young man named David Alcorn. David is a former Baptist who was received into the Catholic Church a few years ago at the Easter Vigil. He writes this, The big issue for me before I converted was the presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. I came to realize that no amount of intellectual argument and debate could convince me one way or the other. I had to believe the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 6. We heard some of those words just a few moments ago in that gospel text I read. David continues, One day it hit me that if Christians can believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, came back from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is God incarnate, then why should there be any problem believing in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? The Incarnation, the Resurrection, and the Ascension are, historically speaking, past events. The real presence is troubling because it exists in the here and now. The words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 67, after many of his disciples leave him because they can't accept this teaching, are extremely powerful. Jesus said, Will you also go away? Our Lord is willing to risk losing some of his followers over the gift of the Eucharist. I had to say, yes, Lord, I believe. And from that point on, I have never doubted his true presence in the Eucharist. Obviously, young David Alcorn spent a great deal of time thinking about the Blessed Sacrament during his latter days as a Protestant. He thought about the Eucharist often. He thought about the Eucharist deeply. And it ultimately led him to embrace the faith of the Catholic Church, to enter the Church, to become Catholic. On this Corpus Christi Sunday, it's important for all of us to think about the Eucharist as well, for the sake of our faith for the sake of the strengthening of our faith. First of all, we need to think of what the Eucharist is. Or maybe I should say we should think of who the Eucharist is. This is something that really troubled David Alcorn. He asked himself, how could ordinary bread and wine substantially change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ while at the same time appearing to be ordinary bread and wine. That was a real problem for him. Until he realized that a God who could bring about a virginal conception and then rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven, a God like that was more than capable, he reasoned, of performing this miracle. I mean, if God can create everything, rise from the dead, ascend into glory, then why can't he change ordinary bread and wine into his own body and blood? I trust that all of us believe the very same thing, that this miracle does indeed happen at every Mass. Of course, if we do believe it, then that belief should be reflected in what we do in our actions here at Mass.
For example, I don't know if you know this, those of you who went certainly do, when people went to see Pope Benedict a few weeks ago in New York City, they were instructed before they, go, they went, if they had a ticket, they were instructed to arrive several hours early for security reasons. In this post-9-11 world, everybody had to run through a checkpoint and it took a lot of time. Getting 50,000 people in Yankee Stadium, that took a while to get them all checked out. But people did it. They happily did it. They were preparing to meet somebody special. Well, lest we forget, Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's even more important than the Pope. So when do you arrive at Mass? Is it chronically late? Is it last minute all the time? Think about that. Do we really believe He's here? And if we do believe He's here, we should want to prepare ourselves internally. So getting here at least five minutes early should be a priority for us. Something for us to work on if we're slipping in that area. When people go to see the Pope or a king or somebody else important here on earth, they are very concerned to present themselves well, to dress properly, to show proper respect. I ask you tonight, how do you normally present yourself at Mass? How do you normally dress for Mass? Especially in the warmer weather. That's a good question for each of us to think about today. Do we dress like we're coming to have an audience with the greatest king of all? Do we really believe he's here? An external attire is important, yes. But even more important is our internal attire. What's going on in our soul? On that note, do we examine our consciences before we go to communion? To arrive at a moral certitude that our soul is indeed in the state of grace? Or do we invite the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords into a temple that's desperately in need of a major spiritual cleansing? And by the way, missing even one Mass, Sunday or Holy Day Mass, without a good reason, is a serious sin that needs to be cleansed, i.e. absolved, before one can come to communion. I mention this after the very poor attendance we had a few weeks ago at our Ascension Thursday liturgies. And I had four of them. I usually just have three Holy Day Masses. I added another one on. Nice guy that I am. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> but I wanted to accommodate more people. And we had fewer people than ever here. Holy days, remember, are just like Sundays in terms of our obligation to be present. Do we really believe he's here? And do we make appropriate physical gestures, appropriate signs of respect to acknowledge the king? when we are here in his presence. For example, when we pass by that tabernacle, or before we take our seat, when we arrive for Mass, do we genuflect on our right knee 
toward the king, who is already present in that gold receptacle. And do we bow our heads before we receive the king at communion time? I've got to tell you, I've been in a number of other parishes recently. Our people are much better at this than a lot of others in other places. I've given out communion at funerals. I gave out communion at a funeral a couple weeks ago in Newport. Very few people bowed their head. Here, most do. Do you? That is the normative sign of respect and reverence the Church asks us to make before we receive. Perhaps we've neglected some of these things because we haven't thought about them. Well, that's precisely why I'm bringing them up in this homily. As I said a few moments ago, today is a day to think about the Eucharist for the sake of our faith and the strengthening of our faith. In this regard, we should also think of what we are saying amen to when we do receive. Now, I know we have some of our second graders here in church today. If I said to them, what does amen mean? Those kids could tell me. Amen means I believe, Father Ray. That's drilled into them <laughs> during their first communion classes. That's why I say that. It's what we are supposed to say with conviction and with clarity after the priest or deacon or extraordinary minister says to us the body of Christ. I mention that little detail because, believe it or not, there are a lot of people who don't say anything. Or they say thank you or some facsimile thereof. Ask your extraordinary minister friends. You hear all kinds of stuff up here. Now the amen obviously means... Yes, I believe that Jesus is truly, substantially here, present before me, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But it means even more than that. Notice what Paul says in this text from 1 Corinthians 10. He writes, Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body because we all partake of the one loaf. The loaf is one. And those who receive from the loaf are also supposed to be one, according to St. Paul. One in faith, in what they believe. So when we say amen at communion time, yes, we're saying amen, I believe this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, my Savior, but we're saying more than that. We're saying, yes, I believe the Catholic faith to be true. Yes, I believe everything that the Catholic Church authoritatively teaches as revealed by God. If we don't believe everything the Church teaches, you know, those difficult moral teachings, the unpopular ones, if we don't believe that stuff, we should not be receiving communion. This, incidentally, is why Protestants and non-Christians are not invited to receive Jesus at communion time in the Catholic Church. It's not because we don't like them. It's not because we want to be mean. In fact, it's just the opposite. We don't invite them because we love them. And we don't want them to lie in public. 
You see, if they come to this altar, if, if a non-Catholic comes to this altar, a non-Christian comes to this altar and receives, by that very action, that person is saying that they believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches authoritatively on faith and morals. But they don't. And how do I know that? Well, if they did, they'd be Catholic. And the reverse is also true. We do not believe all that the Episcopalian Church teaches. We as Catholics do not believe everything that the Lutheran Church teaches, that other Protestant churches teach. So we as Catholics should not be receiving communion in those churches. Even if the Protestant minister conducting the ceremony invites us to do so and says it's okay, we should say thank you, but I cannot. Please remember that the next time you are at a funeral or at a wedding at Christ Episcopal Church or at some other Protestant church in the area. Obviously, receiving Jesus in the Eucharist is a privilege. It's not a right, it's a privilege. For baptized Catholics who are in the state of grace and in good standing in the church, Today, we should think about this privilege we have and thank God for it because we can easily take it for granted. And I am as guilty as anyone in that regard. Believe me, I take it for granted all the time. We should also thank the Lord for the privilege that we have to commune with Him spiritually in the tabernacle, or in the monstrance, in Eucharistic adoration. That's another great gift. On that note, when was the last time that you made a visit to a Catholic church during the week when you didn't have to be here to adore your Eucharistic Lord? When was the last time you made a holy hour? I'll tell you, you could make one tomorrow, at noon, a walking one, with us as we have our Eucharistic procession at noon from Immaculate here to St. Pius. And finally, we should think today of the incredible opportunities that we have when we do receive worthily. Recently, I came across a little reflection on the internet, and I'll conclude with this. It was entitled, When You Miss One Mass and One Holy Communion. And it made clear the many opportunities we have in receiving the Eucharist by speaking of what we miss when we don't. It read as follows. It is well for you to consider what you lose every time you pass up Holy Communion. This is presuming that you can receive. Number one, you miss a personal visit with Jesus, the author of life, love, and holiness. Number two, you lose a special increase of sanctifying grace, which makes your soul more pleasing to God. Number three, you lose a quota of sacramental grace, which entitles you to special help in times of temptation and in the discharge of your duties. 
Number four, you lose a precious opportunity of having all your venial sins wiped away. That's the power of the Blessed Sacrament if you're in the state of grace. Number five, you miss the special preserving influence which each Holy Communion confers against the fires of passion. Number six, you miss the opportunity of having remitted a part or all of the temporal punishment due to your sins. In other words, you can get rid of some purgatory time now. Number seven, you, you lose the spiritual joy, the sweetness, and the particular comfort that come from a fervent Holy Communion. Number eight, you lose a part of the glory that your body might enjoy at its resurrection on the last day. Number nine, you lose the greater degree of glory you would possess in heaven for all eternity. And number ten, you might lose a complete victory over some fault or passion, B, some particular grace that you've been praying for for a long time. C, you might lose the conversion or salvation of some soul you've been praying for. D, you might lose deliverance of a relative or friend from purgatory. In other words, they might have to stay there longer. And E, you might lose many graces that you're praying for for others, both the living and the dead. The reflection ends with a very simple question. Will a few extra minutes of sleep repay you for all of these losses? The answer to that question, of course, should be obvious. And hopefully it is.